Well, good morning. I'm going to introduce myself very quickly if we've not met. My name is Rob, and I'm a member of the congregation here at Christchurch. Um, can I just pray for us before we start? Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear what you have to say. Speak to each of us, Lord, as we need to hear it. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you have been bored at an airport. So bored, in fact, there was nothing to do that all you could come up with was to read your own passport. Anyone? Seeing a few nods, it's not just me. Brilliant. Because See, if you've ever read your passport, you'll see there's lots of interesting things. I mean, I've brought mine here. I need to be careful because there's cameras and this is going up on YouTube. Uh, but you'll see there's a nice charming picture of me in the front here. Uh, there's various bits of information about me, my date of birth. It says here that I'm a, a British citizen. It tells you where I was born and all of that. But on the first page, there's a little bit more. There's something that gives us a bit of context about what it means to be a British citizen, at least in the context of a passport. I don't know if you can read that out there, but it says this. It says, Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of Her Majesty all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance and to afford the bearer such assistance and protection as may be necessary. It's a bit grandiose, um, but that's what it says. And then if you look at the back of the passport, there's some notes, and it sort of tells you what all of that really means. And it says that, you know, as a British citizen, I can, I can live here in, in the UK. Uh, and it, despite all the ridiculous language about passing freely without let or hindrance, it clarifies that I can be hindered greatly by having to fill out forms and apply for visas. Uh, and it, it tells me as well that wherever I am in the world, I can ask the British government, through their embassies and consulates, for aid. So what does all of that have to do with this passage with Paul and the Philippians? Have a look very quickly at verse 20. In chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says here that our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul is using the language of citizenship very, very carefully here. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony. Many of the people hearing this lesson, letter would have been Roman citizens. And everyone hearing it would have been subject to Rome. And if you were a Roman citizen, you didn't need a passport. What you needed was three words. Apologies in advance for my Latin pronunciation. Uh, but civis romanus sum. Those three words meant, I am a Roman citizen. Anyone hearing those words would know that if anything were to happen to that person, then the full might of Rome would descend. Being a Roman citizen meant putting your hope in Rome and in a distant emperor for your protection. Paul is challenging us. Where have you put your hope? Do you put it in Rome, in the British government, or in yourself, or a piece of paper bearing a crest? Or, as a citizen of heaven, have you put all of your hope in Jesus? And now I recognize that I am very privileged. There are many, many millions of people on the earth who do not have the sort of freedom that a passport from a wealthy and safe country brings. But the Bible tells us that everyone, regardless of who they are, what they've done, where they were born, 
that if they accept Jesus, then their true citizenship is in heaven. And there are promises that go with that. Promises that far outweigh anything printed in any passport. And so if God's promises are our passport, then this passage is our travel guide. It tells us that how we can live here on earth as citizens of heaven. So why is that important? Why why do we need to know these things? Have a look at the end of our reading in uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Recognizing that we are citizens of heaven and living as such is how we stand firm in the Lord. And standing firm is is a really big thing for Paul. Uh, So he wrote about 13 letters in the New Testament and in nine of those letters, Paul talks about standing firm. So that is, both of the letters to the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, both letters to the Thessalonians, and his second letter to Timothy, Paul talks explicitly about standing firm. And so why is this a big deal to Paul? Well, let's have a look. I keep forgetting to move my slides on. Uh, Let's have a look at what Jesus said about standing firm. You see, when he sends out the 12 apostles in Matthew 10, verse 22, he says... You will be hated because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Later on in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about the end times, when he returns, he says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. If we want to be saved, If we want the promises that God makes to us in the Bible to apply to us, then we need to stand firm in Jesus, who will, as Paul reminds us in chapter, uh, back in our reading today, verse 21, bring everything under his control and will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So, how do we stand firm? as citizens of heaven living on earth. And before we try and answer that question, it's really important to recognize what standing firm in this context does not mean. Here's an example. Um, It's a bit old-fashioned, I know, but imagine a square of infantrymen standing in the middle of a battlefield, facing off against the oncoming cavalry, digging in, following orders, doing as they're told, ultimately, to stand victorious. You see, if we're honest, sometimes that's how we feel as Christians. The world swirling around us like a battle raging. But you know, if we just stand firm, if we dig in, if we do the right thing, if we follow orders, well then things will be all right in the end. But that is absolutely not what Paul is talking about here. Last week, John took us through the start of chapter 3 where Paul made it really clear that even though he was a Pharisee, even though he had followed every rule in the book, followed all of the orders, done everything that he could in his own power, that he was righteous under the law, well, all of that meant nothing. Standing firm in Jesus means something more. And it is something arguably much harder 
than just following orders or ticking off a to-do list. It requires a complete change of heart, a change in our mindset, in our priorities, in our ambitions, and in our goals. Paul puts it like this. Have a look down at your Bibles, right at the start of our reading, chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this. If you're not sure what he means by all this, can I really encourage you, have another read of chapter 3, listen back to John's sermon from last week online. But he says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Well, how do we stand firm? Well, Paul tells us we stand firm by pressing on. On the surface, that, that does feel a little bit contradictory. I mean, how do we stand firm and push on at the same time? But the word that Paul uses here for press on in Greek was dioko. And that has a lot of different meanings. It does indeed mean to press on. But one of the other ways we can think about it is to pursue. If we pursue something, and when we use that word in every day, we often use it when we're thinking about our dreams, our goals, our ambitions, the things that we're directing our energy towards, the things that we say to ourselves that when we just get there, if we just achieve that, that house, that new job, get on that holiday, take that break, but when we just get there, they're the things that we're really hoping for, then things are going to be okay. But what Paul is saying is that that which we should be... Oh, sorry, I'm, my word's gone a bit messed up here. So what Paul is saying, before all of that, before all of those things, what we should be pursuing is that for which Christ has taken hold of us. Our priority, our goal, the things that we're directing our energies towards before all else, that needs to be found in Jesus and in his promise to us. And if we can do that, then none of those other things are going to matter quite as much. I mean, let's be honest, though. Those things are still going to matter to us. Houses, jobs, security. That's okay. We are, after all, for now, still living in a broken world. But they cannot be our main goal. They cannot be the place where we store all of our hope. Have a look at chapter 14. And Paul summarizes all of this. He says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Where we are heading, where we are heading is far more important, far more awesome than where we are now. Where are we heading? Look back at chapter, uh, verses 22 and 21. We're heading to a time when Jesus will return from heaven in power and he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our goal, our salvation, what we are striving for can only be the salvation that can only be found in Christ. So, how do we live now then? If that's what's ahead how do we live now? And Paul has, helpfully, a two-step plan for us here. And that, we'll find that in verse 13. Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Step one, forget what's behind. Step two, strain towards what is ahead. But here's the thing, do you notice? Both of these steps are only possible because of Jesus. We can forget what is behind because Jesus died on the cross for us. He paid the ultimate price for our sins, for our arrogance if we ever thought that this was something we could do by ourselves. And as for what is ahead, that was verse 20. Paul tells us that it is our Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day return to make us anew in him. We're only going to achieve this with Jesus. So standing firm in Christ requires a complete step change in our priorities. This cannot be about us or about what we can do or about the here and now. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ who, as Paul says earlier in Philippians, made himself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that one day we can share in his resurrection. Practically, though, that is not going to be easy. That is so countercultural. It's so opposite to what we are told to do. And so Paul gives us three tips, three reminders to help us do this. The first is to remember that even though we are awaiting his return in glory, Jesus is still with us today. The second, that God will be working within our hearts throughout all of this. And lastly, that we are not in this alone. Let's look at each of those three very quickly in turn. In verse 12, Paul, tells us, Paul says that Christ has taken hold of him. But again, this is where Paul's use of language has a bit of a double meaning. By take hold, what he's saying is, has grasped me and taken control of me. The theologian Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, all Paul's efforts after the eventual goal of resurrection are not a matter of his unaided effort to do something that will make God pleased with him. They all take place within the context of God's grace. King Jesus has grasped hold of him. And all that he now does is a matter of responding in love to that firm hand on his shoulder. See, when I have a particularly tricky bit of DIY to do at home, the first thing I do is I pick up my phone and I call my dad. You see, I don't want to face these tasks alone. I mean, let's face it, who wants to do DIY at all? And I'm, I'm new to DIY. This is, this is fairly new to me in my life. And I don't want to go through that without somebody who's been there before. Before I even pick up a paintbrush, I rely on knowing that my dad is just a phone call away. That if something goes wrong, he's going to be there for me, guiding me, supporting me. How much more comforting than that, then, is it to know that whatever we're facing today, however difficult or easy the road we are walking, right beside us is the one who has seen it all, who knows the path ahead and is the promise of our destination. 
Then number two, uh, have a look at verse 15 and 16. Paul says this. All of us who are... All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Let us live up to what we, only let us live up to what we have already attained. What Paul is telling us to do here is countercultural. It's pretty much the exact opposite to what we've been told by society to do. It's even a little confusing. Stand form. Stand firm by looking forward, suggesting that staying put might not even be an option. But the promise here is that it's God who will make it clear to us. It is God who will be working in our hearts and in our minds. All we need to do is live up to what we've already attained. And then finally, in verse 17, he says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. See, the Christian journey should never be a solitary one. Not only do we walk with Jesus, but we walk walk alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Paul is calling on the Philippians to look to him as an example, so we can look to our own leaders. No pressure, John. Um, But we don't just have our leaders. We have each other. We have everybody in this building, everybody in the world who is striving towards that ultimate goal. We can learn from each other. We can support each other. We can pray for and with each other. So we stand firm in Jesus when we put all our hopes in his promised salvation when we put our citizenship in heaven above anything that we have on earth, when we recognize that it is only through him that any of this is possible. In a moment, we're going to worship the Lord together again. And as the band come up, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to use the chorus of of quite an old hymn, and it's one I think many of you will recognize. We've sung it here a few times. Um, And while I pray, can I encourage you to stand, um, if you're able to, perhaps close your eyes, maybe hold out your hands, just something to symbolize that you're ready to welcome the Holy Spirit, to welcome God to do that work inside you. Lord Jesus, help us to turn our eyes upon you so that we can look into your wonderful face, Let the things of earth grow strangely dim. Lord, in the light of your glory and grace.